Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Regina. Hi everyone, my name is Regina. I am definitely a compulsive overeater. Thank you for having me here. This is the second time I've spoken at this meeting, but we had some hi. We had um, some technical difficulties last time, which I thought I had the perfect pitch of all time, <laughs> and it didn't work out. But so tonight, I'm sure it'll go great for me, and I'll feel better afterwards. And I hope that you guys all do too. Um, I didn't want to come tonight. That's probably why I was late. It's probably why I went up Barrington instead of Bundy and went, what am I doing on Barrington? And I had to turn around, so I'm a few minutes late, and I do apologize for that. And I know from experience that even though I don't want to come and I have better things to do or whatever, maybe I don't have better things to do, maybe I have nothing to do, um, which is probably true tonight, um, that it doesn't matter. I show up, and I do what I said I was going to do, and then I'm going to feel better afterwards anyway. And so I just reminded myself of that and, and, and got here. Um, made an illegal U-turn and got a good parking spot, too. So there you have it. Um, okay, so I'm definitely a compulsive overeater. You know, I love it when people hand around photos of the kind of before and after thing. I find it fascinating because it's such a, I mean, it is such proof, right? You can't always see that somebody's spirits changed. If you don't know them, you don't interact with them. Maybe you feel good energy from them. But sometimes when you see kind of before and after photos, you can really see how people have changed um, as a result of this program. And I would love to bring those photos to you, but I kind of shredded all of them. Um, I actually have two photos of me that I found from from back in the olden days, and um, maybe another time I will bring them. But when I found all these photos of myself back then, I wanted to get rid of them because I wanted to distance myself. And this was before I got into recovery, so... It wasn't the last time that I looked like that, unfortunately. Um, But I had found all those photos at a very low point in my weight, um, and I didn't want to be identified with that with that person any longer. So I got rid of all those photos. So if you open up the photo um, albums that I still have, there's like blank spots. There's like nice scenery and like landscape photos and big blank spots on each page where I took out photos of myself. Um, So I don't have any photos to show you. But what I can tell you is that my abstinence date is May 9th of 2007, so that gives me about four and a half years of continuous abstinence in this program. And abstinence, for me, has meant a lot of things, but the baseline for me is that I am free from compulsive overeating or undereating or obsessing about my body or whatever, okay? Um, The food that I eat, the days that I have look different kind of on an ongoing basis. But the baseline abstinence for me is that I'm free from compulsive overeating. I haven't binged or purged in four and a half years and a whole bunch of other stuff that I haven't done. Um, And I probably got about a 70-pound weight loss from my top weight. Uh, I also haven't been on a scale in years, which is a really good thing because it's not once been the right number. Um, And so it's a big freedom to – I could probably guess within ounces, okay, what I weigh right now from a lifetime of, you know, body obsession. Um, But I haven't been on a scale in in years because it was suggested to me that that might be something that was gaining far too much importance um, in my life. So um, I'm guessing about a 70-pound weight loss. And right now, today, I'm cool. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's freaking miracle that I can say that. Like right now today, standing here in my shoes, in my feet, right here in front of you guys, that I'm cool. Um, I'm not obsessing about my body. I'm not thinking about what, well, now I am because I'm talking about it. Not thinking about what I ate, like, for my last meal and calculating the calories and going through how much I have to work out as a result or what size my pants are or how much I weigh or how many hours I have to spend in the gym or blah, 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 blah. The constant calculation is not going on in my head anymore. And once I, once I kind of got some freedom from that, at first it was moments, like little glimpses of freedom from that, um, and now it's like really long spans of time of freedom from that. That's where God gets to come in. That's where our people get to come in to my life. That's where I get to experience my life when I have freedom from that constant obsession of how am I going to control and manage my food, my weight, my body, and what you think of me. Because it's all the same thing to me. I don't know about you guys. It's all the same thing to me. Um, when I was a little kid... I was always a chunky little kid. I wore husky blue jeans. Did anybody wear those? Those were awesome. I got made fun of for wearing those. Um, I was a chunky little kid, and I would—I remember, like, in, in elementary school, finishing other kids' lunches, you know, and um, and people handing me their trays. You want this? I'm like, okay. And um, I remember my mom. Who can't, I'll get to this too. My mom came to visit me recently. My mom. Let's see. I'm 43. My mom has been on a diet for at least 43 years. So for as long as I've known her, she's been on a diet, you know. And uh, so there was always, like, drama around food going on in my house when I was a kid. So not only was I, like, very focused on food for myself, but everyone else in the house, everyone else in my house was very focused on food. Um, my mom on a diet all the time. And she was fat the whole time, too. So clearly it wasn't working. My dad, who could white-knuckle through anything, God bless him. It doesn't do anything for his demeanor, but he can white-knuckle through anything, okay? Quit smoking started running in the 70s, and that was it. He's weighed like 150 pounds since then. I mean, he's 72 now, he still runs, and he might weigh 155, you know? That's it. He just white-knuckled it, and he doesn't understand why anyone else can't do that. Um, and so he was on my mom all the time, you know, screaming at her, yelling at her, and... I would hear that directed at me as well. I have a sister, too. I would hear that directed at all of us, you know, around food, around how much we weighed. And I don't remember him ever saying, you're fat. But I remember him always picking on me when I was eating and always having screaming and uproar. I have Italian father, Irish mother. Do the math. It's a loud, loud family. Okay? Crazy people. Throwing shit and everything. So, you know, mealtimes, just like insanity. And... I remember, like, just even in junior high, we'd get sent, my sister and I were about a year and a half apart. We'd go to school. I'd eat three cookies and a milk for lunch because I was restricting then. Um, <laughs> and I'd come home, and because my parents were both working and my mom total workaholic, and my dad had to go running, right, we wouldn't eat dinner until, you know, 8 o'clock at night. So as a teenager, you know, I'd go for eight hours without food. And that makes me sad right now. And so we'd sit down to dinner. My sister and I, the same thing. We would just scarf our dinners. And my father would be screaming at us the whole time. So there wasn't a lot of, like, food wasn't nurturing. It wasn't, it wasn't pleasant in the fact that you could relax and enjoy a meal um, with your family. That just didn't happen. Um, 
there was always a lot of uproar around it. I remember I used to steal, like my dad would have little snacks, and I'd steal his, and I'd try to hide that I didn't steal them because he would just scream at me for eating them. Um, so I became very focused on food, and I always wanted more. You know, there was never enough. There was never enough food. And so I always wanted more, and I would, like, like I said, finish other kids' lunches, and I was always, like, just... It went from preoccupation to a full-on obsession, but I can see kind of the progression of that. Chunky kid, I, I like between 6th and 7th grade, I think I grew 5 or 6 inches in height. Like girls get tall in junior high, you know, and I, that's when I got reached my height. And as a result, I didn't gain any weight, so as a result I spent like two years thin. It was not the best two years of my life. I hardly remember them, but I'd like to think that they were good. Um, and then every year after that, maybe gained 10 pounds. So by the time I went to college, I weighed 188 pounds, and I was miserable. This should tell you how miserable I was. Um, it was in the 80s, and I went to art school, so you could look a little weird in art school, okay? Um, I weighed 188 pounds, and I had a bleached white fan mohawk. Yeah, me. I know, you can't tell looking at me now. I had a bleached white fan mohawk, black eyeliner, Doc Martens, and a really, really bad attitude. Okay. And I was miserable miserable and everyone thought I was mean because I was because I hated everybody and I was afraid of everybody because you were all judging me because I was fat and I judged everybody else who was fat you know um and I was miserable and that was the first time in my life I was at college I was away from home I'm also an alcoholic I got sober in AA before I got abstinent here thank God for the 12 steps they actually kind of work kind of across the board if you apply them um <laughs> Go figure. Um, but that's like the first time in my life where I can see looking back, I was just wildly afraid. And as a result, wildly out of control with food, drugs, alcohol, sex, everything. And I was very, very miserable. It was also the first time I was like, oh, well, my dad has been running for like 800 years now, so maybe I'm going to try that because I, wa- I, I wanted to lose weight. And I think it's the first time I ever really tried to lose weight and I started running and I actually lost a little bit of weight Um, but it was short lived and I'm not a really good white knuckler I don't know about you guys but I want serenity in my life I didn't even know serenity was something that existed let alone would be possible for me at that point in my life but right now that's all I want I do like a little drama on the side (laughs) if truth be told but I want to just be at peace And so I went through a long time, you know, 10 more years of eating, drinking, taking drugs, having sex, eating, drinking, taking drugs, having sex, blah, 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 and always feeling miserable about myself. I can't even separate any of it because it was so part of the same pattern, you know. And I didn't even, I don't, I was so far checked out that I don't think I knew I didn't, I weighed 220 pounds, and my mom said to me, you've gained a lot of weight. Well, first off, coming from my mom, like, whatever. But secondly, but secondly, this is like my fifth college. Well, I went to a couple of community colleges, those don't really count. This is my second university. So, and I gained a ton of weight, again, afraid, because I'm in a new situation, and I'm surrounded by new people, and I'm on my own, and I just ate and ate and ate, and drank and did drugs and all the other stuff, too. Um, but my mom said to me, you know, you've gained a lot of weight. And I went off on her. You know, at 220 pounds, I'm like five, five and a half, So it's like a size 22, you know. I mean, I was a big girl. And I just went off on my mom, screaming at her, how dare you. You're one to talk. Don't judge me. Society judges me, blah, blah, you know. 
and and I wouldn't hear it. And I shut her down so hard, so fast, that she never again brought it up. So I think that I, I was here actually at UCLA from like 92 to 94, and I think those were probably two of the worst years of my life. I did great academically. Like a lot of 12-steppers do, we can excel in other areas of our lives while we are completely, completely devastated and miserable, kind of spiritually. Um, and then I ended up moving back to the Bay Area. My, I'm from the East Coast, but we had all kind of migrated to the Bay Area in the late 80s and early 90s. And when I got back there, um, a couple of magic things happened. Fen-Fen happened. Um, and my sister, who I, I believe... God bless her, is untreated anorexic and exercise bulimic and body obsessor, but who am I to judge? Um, introduced me to, like, really the wonders of exercise and over-exercising in an effort to control and manage my, my size. I'd done commercial diets, I'd done this and that, and up and down, and blah, 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 and nothing worked, because that doesn't work for people like me. That doesn't treat the problem. The problem is spiritual malady. So I don't know how some Jenny Craig can treat a spiritual malady. didn't work for me anyway. Um, I don't even think I tried that one, but I tried some of the other ones. Anyway, but my sister introduced me to this. So in combination with taking med- you know, diet medication and working out, I got really small for a, w- a long time. Um, now, it wasn't that pleasant to be around at the time, you know, because... Um, I don't know if you guys have had any experience with people who are exercise bulimics, but kind of have a priority in their lives, and that is working out. Um, so if you get in the way of that, it's going to be a problem. So, like, I would be at work. I was a VP at a bank. I don't know how that happened either. But I was not a good, I was not a good employee. They kept paying me really good money until I quit, but that's another story. Um, and I would just, like, leave to go running. And they'd be like, where are you going? I'm like, running. Like, you idiot. Of course that's where I'm going. Hello, excuse me. I'll be back. You know, I'll just leave. Or it would be, I'd have this whole team of people I was managing, and it would, you know, 11.59 would happen, and they'd be like, their heads would pop up out of the cubicles. They'd be like, feeding time! Because they'd know that I would just start to go insane at lunchtime. You know? I was already not a nice person. Total, total bitch. Crazy. Mean to everybody. But right around lunchtime, that... I'd have that dip, you know, and I would just go crazy. And I was the only one it was happening to, you know. I mean, other people suffer low blood sugar, but they don't turn into raving lunatics, so much so that it's, like, publicly known. I mean, they pop up and go, feeding time, who does that? So that kind of stuff was going on. Um, Anyway, so fast forward. I I kind of fell off the map for a few years, um, Alcohol and drugs really took me down further, faster, harder, and much more obviously than food ever did. Because I think as a compulsive overeater, I get to ignore the fact that I weigh 220 pounds. You know? I just do. If I had track marks up and down my arms, I think for some reason that that's more noticeable. You know? I have my co- one of my cousin's kids. She's like 18, and she probably weighs 300 pounds. And that's what I look like. I, that's what I think about with her now that I'm awake and aware. I'm like, it's no different than if she had track marks going up and down her arms. She has a serious addiction, apparently. So I'm hoping that somehow I get put in her path, somehow she lives on a different coast, to carry the message to her. I don't know. Maybe one of you guys will get put in her path to carry the message to her. But I really ignored the 
the fact that I had a problem with food for a really long time. Although my sister, ever helpful, once suggested I check out Overeaters Anonymous. And I looked on the website of, I think it was how, and it said something like, all I found there, there was probably a lot of other information there, and all I saw was no sugar and no white flour. I'm like, that's this. Are they crazy? I'm not doing that. I'm just going to go to the gym, you know? <laughs> Forget it. I can work out more. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but so, uh, you know, alcohol and drugs really took me down, and I had stopped. As a result of that, I stopped my workout because I couldn't, I couldn't leave the house, you know? I couldn't leave the house. I mean, I was like a quarter-day bourbon drinker, cocaine user. I'd never left the house. And then I'd order food and drugs and alcohol to be delivered. So I'd drink and use drugs all night, and I'd eat all day. Repeat. You know? Um, so I ended up um, getting sober. Oh, this should tell you how much I was working out. Like, I gained 50 pounds in a year when I stopped working out. So, you know, it was it was holding the tide back, but only for so long. Um, even my drug dealer asked me, well, what, what happened? <laughs> I'm like, just you relax. What happened to you? You blew yourself up three days and forget it. It's your problem. Anyway, um, so I was quick to point out other people's problems. Um, so that's why I ended up getting sober. And about about a year or two into, I'm like six and a half years sober, and I got into OA about two years after that. So about a year and a half. Maybe. So I got I got sober. So I got healthy. I dropped some weight. Everything was great. I was feeling wonderful. And then all of a sudden, I was like, there's cake at every meeting. There's cookies and candy at every meeting. This is awesome. I get to eat cake every meeting. I'm at a meeting every day, so I'm eating cake every day. And it's there, and I'm just, like, going to town on sugar. And I don't think that sugar had ever been as obvious to me as those first two years of my sobriety, because that's all I wanted was sugar. Because it was just a switch. You know, it was doing for me what what things had also done for me in the past. I would go into my friend's office and she had a salad bowl of M&Ms and I would just scoop handfuls, not like a couple, like dig in handfuls. And I'd be like, yeah, up and at her and talking and blah, 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 and like scooping in these big handfuls. Like it was a salad bowl. Who does that? I was so happy that she did that. But I was at my house one night. And my AA sponsor was there and another fellow, who I think might have been also in this program. And they came over. I had ordered food, takeout, ate it all, purged, ate some more, purged. They came over. I had some more, purged, came out of the bathroom. And they're both sitting there, and they're both, like, hands on hips looking at me. And I'm like, what? They're like, did you just throw up? And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And they're like, are you kidding? And I'm like, I ate too much. I was full. I'm uncomfortable. I had to get rid of it. And they're like, are you out of your effing mind? I'm like, what are you talking? It was just like the same thing. Like, where are you going? I'm going running. Like, I couldn't get that something might be a myth. And they're like, you need to go to OA. I'm like, well, you need to go to OA. Because if anybody wasn't perfect, what could they tell me? Right? My AA sponsor at the time was overweight. And it was the first time I had heard that perhaps binging and purging was not sober behavior. Okay? And I'm like, really? Shit. So the next day I went to an OA meeting, and I was like, eh. I was crying. I identified. I went another couple days later. I cried. I identified. And I didn't go back for like six months. And in that intervening six months, like some really crazy stuff happened. 
Because when the 12 steps are introduced to your life and you start to clear away everything that's blocking you from God and from your fellows, you start to wake up. And I was waking up. And I was waking up to the fact that I was a compulsive overeater, a body obsessor, a bulimic, an all-around crazy person. And I was miserable. And I had started to put weight back on because I was binging sugar. And about six months after I had gone to that, those first two OA meetings, I think I hit a, a huge spiritual bottom. It was much more evident to me than also what happened before getting sober. Because I was more awake. I would gotten rid of a lot of the buffer that was in my life. And I learned how to write because, you know, when you go through a 12-step program, you learn how to write. And um, I learned how to write to God, letters to God. I learned how to write inventory. And so this night, I was completely obsessed with my body, and, and I had gained weight. And I felt fat again, you know, and I was freaking out. And I knew that I couldn't do this anymore and that I was miserable and that of my own accord, I was not enough of my own human resources. I was not going to be able to fix this. And I wasn't willing to try again. And so I sat down to write and it ended up being a Dear God, Fuck You letter. And I'm, I'm not kidding. And that's how it started out. And I just... It was horrifying, you know, what, what I wrote about. That God had forsaken me. And that's how I had felt. Like as a little kid. As um, an adolescent. As an adult. That God had forsaken me. He allowed me to grow up fat. He had allowed me parents who didn't know how to take care of me. He allowed me alcoholism, compulsive overeating. He allowed me um, being alone my entire life. I was about 39 when I came into this program and single, and I blamed it all on God. And I just railed against God in this letter. And so they say when you're angry with God, you're actually angry with yourself. And I think a lot of that is true. But I also think there was a lot of anger in that in that letter that I'd never felt expressed, processed, been through, experienced before. And the next day, I was ready to to try something new. And that's when I came into um, OA for real. And that's my abstinence date, which is May 9th of 2007. And I've stayed since then. And I've been completely imperfect in this program, just so you know. So I got about a year of abstinence. Went to a lot of meetings, didn't go to a lot of meetings. Went to half of a meeting, didn't go to any meetings. Caught a sponsor who was like in her 20s. And I just knew that there was no way that I wouldn't be able to talk my way out of anything. You know? I was like, I mean, I don't know that I consciously did that, like, but looking back, it's like, really, Regina? Um, but God bless her, because she fired me at just the right time. Um... I went through some time of kind of pulling back away from OA for a little while and being wildly uncomfortable. And I came back after this girl um, uh, fired me. I was really mad at her at the time, but it was the biggest gift. Um, I walked into a meeting, hadn't been in a while, and this woman was speaking, and she had like 35, 75, 800 years of abstinence. I don't know what it was. And she was slim. Like she she had physical recovery as well, which to me was very important. And... Um, and she spoke, and I asked her after the meeting if she would sponsor me. And she said, you know, I can because one of my people just had a move, a schedule change, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, actually, I have an opening. 
You have to call me Tuesdays and Thursdays at 6.15 a.m. Here's my number. Talk to you then. I'm like, what? Are you kidding? Like, um, now I get up early, but, you know, four years ago, I was like, are you out of your mind, 6.15 a.m.? But I was willing at that time. And um, someone in the audience is laughing because she's my sponsee, and she calls me at 6.30 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So it works. So I met this woman, and I was about, I don't know, two years of abstinence in this program. Very imperfect, uncomfortable. Um, and I started to really make a connection with the group, with the fellowship, with the work, with myself. And when I started to work the steps with her, you know, I've worked in, um, I'd like to say a million, but I've worked a lot of inventory in this program, in my other program. And... One of the first things I did with her was to, to write an inventory. And I wrote a sex inventory. And now, this is a woman who's like 65 years old and had a vastly different upbringing than I did. And she's not an alcoholic. So that leaves off that whole madness of what that brings to the plate. Um, and the first thing, because I was having a lot of trouble with my personal relationships. By trouble, I mean like nightmares, you know, completely obsessive out of my mind. It was really affecting me. And one of the first times I spent any time with her at all, I read her sex inventory. And I'll tell you, God bless her, she didn't even flinch. You know, she just didn't. I was afraid because our experience had been so different. If I do something like that in an a, with an AA sponsor, I assume that there's going to be some shared experience there. And I was really afraid that she was going to judge me, and she didn't. And I can't tell you how integrated for me the idea of my weight, the size of my body, and my worth to other people are related. And my sexuality, my identity as a woman are related. They are intertwined, and I can't pull them apart. And so I had to start looking at some of that stuff. And I had to start changing some of my behavior. Now, the interesting thing about abstinence, right, like abstinence, well, it's really clear in a program like AA, I don't drink or do drugs, right? But in a program like OA, where I actually have to eat to stay alive, it's not as clear cut. It's not as clear cut. And so I think the good news is, is I haven't spent a lot of time torturing myself over what constitutes abstinence. You know, when it comes right down to it, I don't really binge or purge no matter what. And I had to give up sugar because I'll binge and purge if I eat sugar. I can't weigh myself because I'll obsess. And I'll obsess, come up short when I judge myself, and then I'll binge and purge. I can't skip meals because those cause me to overeat. And if I start to overeat, then I might binge and purge. So I don't do that either. But the bottom line is I don't binge or purge. I don't compulsively overeat. All that other stuff just helps me not to do the kind of bottom line stuff. And giving up certain things, stopping certain things. Like we come in here and we're like, okay, my way isn't working anymore. I'm not sure I want what you all have. In fact, for two years of meetings, I was sure I really was not that interested. Um, But I knew that I didn't want what I had at the time. So I have to try something new. Can I think my way into it? Probably not. So 
I actually have to try the action first. An action might be inaction. It might be taking a different action. It might be stopping one thing or doing something else instead. It might be sitting quietly. Has anyone tried this? That's the hardest thing. Sitting quietly is the hardest thing for me. Um, but what's suggested to me and what I've heard in meetings is if, you know, if you're confused about something and you don't know how something's affecting you, let's say extra food, if you're not sure what the extra food is doing for you, try giving it up and you'll find out. And that was like spiritual awakening to me. And I was like, wow, interesting. So, you know, my food plan has changed here and there, and I'm actually really stable in my weight and everything's cool. I went on vacation, I gained a couple pounds because I ate whatever I wanted. And then I made a decision that maybe next year I won't eat whatever I want on vacation because it's torture when I come back. I have a choice that I can do that next year. Thank God for this program. But I've gone through kind of refining my food plan to make it more comfortable. That's all. Not to make me more abstinent, but to make it more comfortable for me. And the really interesting thing is the refinement of that is that I had to get uncomfortable first. So I really like the idea of if you don't know what something's doing for you, try giving it up and you'll find out. Because I really believe that in the giving it up and the the not relying on it, whatever it is, weighing myself every day, counting calories every day, calculating how many calories I'm going to burn off at the gym every day, obsessing over my body every day, eating three snacks instead of one every day, whatever it is, if I try giving it up, I'm going to get uncomfortable for a few, for a little while, a long while, who knows? But that's where the change happens, because that that space in the discomfort is where I invite God in. And I know that because that's my experience, okay? So when I give up the extra or when I give up the restricting or when I give up the whatever and I sit in the discomfort, well, then I can't rely on picking up something to soothe me, right? To fill that spiritual void. I have to fill it spiritually, which means I have to use the tools of this program. Oh, my God, who knew? That's what they're for. Really? For when I'm uncomfortable. And so, it's been a wildly, the last like year has been just wild for me. I feel like I finally got awake, like I came awake. My spirit awakened. My spiritual awakening happened. And it's because of a lot of willingness to sit in discomfort. It's amazing. I've told this story. I was in the shower the other day, and I'm like... I've heard someone in another program talk about the shower as her war room, okay? And that's where she plans her whole day, and she's, I'm going to say this and do that, and, you know, you're going to do this, and that's what's going to, and then this is going to work out, and then the whole argument with this person that isn't there, and the blah, 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 and I totally identify with that. But I was in the shower the other day, and wasn't doing that. I was just in the shower. And my feet felt really, really weird. They felt really flat. I'm like, am I having, my arches are falling? Why are my feet feeling so flat? Like, and I really felt the tub underneath my feet, and I, was, I could really feel, like, the tub underneath my feet. And I looked down. I'm like, what is going on? And I realized that I was actually occupying my body in real time. That I was present. Fully, completely present. And the reason it felt so weird was because I don't have any practice in that. It was completely, completely new. And it's, it was a wildly profound experience. 
because all that time that I spent since I was a little kid eating and doing whatever else over my anxiety, my fear, my feelings of inadequacy, my feelings that you aren't going to love me, my feelings that it's only going to work out if I control and manage it, and if I'm a size four or two or six or anything in those range would be fine. Um, <laughs> if only, if only, if only... I spent so much time either planning and controlling and managing in my head or checking out that I never really felt my feet before. I never actually occupied my body before. I was having some other adjacent experience. And so all of a sudden, like, I have this spiritual awakening and I'm present. And I'll tell you, it's an amazing thing. So what's been happening since then is several meals since that happened. I'm like, oh, I'm full and stopped eating. <sighs> like, I have a measured out portion on my plate. That's mine, hands off, I'm going to eat it, right? Seriously, I don't share. It's mine, hands off, I'm going to eat it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, you know, I think this is enough. That's crazy to me. That's crazy to me. Because that's serenity and that's peace. And there is no white knuckling involved, Okay? And not only am I, like, present in my body, but I'm present to the information that my body's giving back to me. Amazing. And I've had a lot of serenity around my food and my food plan and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's all been pretty good. But, like, this is the new kind of improved version. And it's really, really cool. Um, my mom was here. Talk about being present. So my mom came to visit. She's been very ill for two years. Um... She's been very ill. She's been treated for cancer, two rounds of chemo, two big surgeries, very ill. Um, she's also a total crazy person. Um, and she, I need to see her because I'm afraid she's going to die, and I need to spend some time with her. And it's very difficult for me to visit my family in Northern California because my sister and I do not speak. And that, unfortunately, is the best I can do with her. That's the best relationship I can have with her is to not engage with her. And so it's very uncomfortable for me to visit them where they live because she lives right near there. So my mom decided she was going to come visit me. Now, instead of, let's see, the big new experience for me was that my mom's probably gained 50 pounds over two years of chemo. And that, that shows a, a real, real illness in my mind that has nothing to do with cancer. It has a lot to do with compulsive overeating. Um, because it takes a lot to overcome the effects of those drugs, I think. I don't know. But I know my mom, and I've known her for a long time. And it took a lot to have compassion for her, but I noticed that I have compassion for her. Instead of judgment and meanness, I have compassion for her. And that's kind of like the first time I really felt it without, like, making a point to feel it or making a point to remind myself that I might want to do it, that I actually genuinely felt compassion for her that she must be really scared. And she doesn't have any other tools to deal with that. And also the things that happened while she was here is, I don't know about your mom's, but mine, you know, mine can make me crazy in the blink of an eye. And so to keep on my side of the street, like that's another thing that I've learned here. You know, stay on my side of the street. You can do what you're going to do over there, and I'm going to be right here doing what I'm going to do, which is what I say I'm going to do, like take you to the airport on time even if you're panicking, that we're going to be late. Because we're not, and you're not going to miss your flight. And I'm not going to panic anyway. But that kind of stuff that went on with her is its a result of being present in my life, right? 
so I don't get enmeshed in other people's stuff. So I know where I end and they begin. That's a result of doing inventory, doing amends, looking what's on the shelf of Regina and what's not on the shelf of Regina, and making choices about what I can do to to grow in areas that I want to grow and make different choices and take different actions around that stuff. And that's how when my mom, who is crazy maker, comes to my house, and I'm afraid because I'm afraid she's going to die, so there's a whole emotional upheaval that's happening with me, that she can have her little madness, and I don't have to join in. I don't have to punish her for it, make her wrong, or try to stop her. I can just be compassionate and kind, but on my side of the street. And I'll tell you, I don't have to eat over it either. It's amazing. And I don't make any events because I didn't, I didn't have to. I just behaved myself. And so I've had one of the nicest visits I've ever had with my mom. Go figure. Okay? Go figure. So I brought the book up here because I wanted to read something. Do I have time? Yeah, I got a couple minutes. Okay. So what has happened? I got present. It was a result of a lot of work in these rooms, right? It was a result of the willingness to be uncomfortable. I get some outside help who happens to have 25 years in another program. So I don't know how outside it is because there's a lot of a, a solution in there or a 12-step solution in there. And um, he told me recently that my job is to sit with the discomfort. So if there's something that's bothering me, not to fix it, not to obsess over it, not to think about it. I'm going to plan and scheme and figure it out whatever it is, but to just sit with it. And the more I practice that, the more grounded I become, the flatter my feet become on the earth. So my OA sponsor had me read this in um, in the big book. And she likes to say, okay, every day for 30 days. And I'm like, and I, and I do it. That's another amazing thing. Call me at 6.15 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I do it. That's another amazing thing. Um, it's on page 450. It's in one of the stories in the back called He Lived Only to Drink. Have you guys read this? It's awesome. Okay. In early sobriety, I had to continue to live in a flop house filled with active drunks, not drinking. I became acutely aware of my surroundings, the foul smells, the noise, the hostility and physical danger. My resentments mounted at the realization that I had flushed a career down the drain, disgraced and alienated my family, and been relegated to the meanest of institutions at Skid Row Shelter. But I was also able to realize that this bonfire of resentment and rage was beckoning me to pick up a drink and plunge into my death. Then I realized I had to separate my sobriety from everything else that was going on in my life. No matter what happened or didn't happen, I couldn't drink. In fact, none of these things that I was going through had anything to do with my sobriety. The tides of life flow endlessly for better or worse, both good and bad, and I cannot allow my sobriety to become dependent on these ups and downs of living. Sobriety must have a life of its own. So, in this case, sobriety around food, right? Sobriety around my emotions. It doesn't matter what goes on. It doesn't matter that my mom is sick. It doesn't matter that I don't have a good relationship with my sister, and that hurts me, you know? It doesn't matter that there's a bad economy. It doesn't matter that I stub my toe. It doesn't matter. If I have a spiritual solution, I get to remain grounded and present and okay. And everything's going to be fine. It might not be fine, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to be fine. That's the point of the exercise. I think the point of the 12 steps is to know that no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. Because before I got here, I only knew doom. Right? I'm fucked. I'm always going to be fucked. It does, nothing will ever change. 
And that scared me. And I ate and drank over it and did a lot of other things over it. But I think the point of the exercise of the 12 steps is that I develop a relationship with my higher power. I develop a relationship with my fellows. I become grounded here, present. And it doesn't matter what goes on out there. I'll be okay. That's a huge gift. I hope you guys agree. Thank you.